Turkey's Erdogan hosts talks on Sweden's NATO membership. Safak Timur Aaron Mendel Stephen Erlanger Neil Macfarquhar Matthew Pope Big Neil Macfarquhar Gabriela Sapasoa. Istanbul, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan of Turkey is hosting high-level talks on Wednesday aimed at bridging differences over Sweden's application to join NATO. The talks between Mr. Erdogan and senior officials from Finland, Sweden and NATO are the first since the Turkish president secured re-election last month and Turkey's allies will be watching closely for any signs that Mr. Erdogan's position on Sweden's application, which he has so far blocked, has changed. Sweden and Finland both applied to join NATO after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine began in February last year, but Turkey has hobbled the expansion process, accusing the two Nordic nations of not taking Turkey's security concerns seriously. In April, Turkey allowed Finland to join NATO, but it has so far refused to do the same for Sweden, accusing it of not meeting Turkey's demands. Turkey asked both governments to take a harder line on pro-Kurdish activists and members of an outlawed religious group whom Turkey considers terrorists. Finland and Sweden have amended their terrorism legislation and a small number of people accused of crimes in Turkey have been extradited, but many fewer than Turkey has asked for. Hungary is the only other NATO member that has not allowed Sweden to join. New members of the alliance must be accepted by all members. Mr. Erdogan's critics have accused him of taking advantage of NATO's rules for domestic political benefit. Last week, NATO's Secretary-General, Jens Stoltenberg, renewed his call for Turkey to let Sweden join the alliance after failing to reach a breakthrough in talks in Istanbul. Sweden has fulfilled its obligations, Mr. Stoltenberg said, adding that it had lifted an arms embargo on Turkey, strengthened its anti-terrorism legislation and amended its constitution. President Biden said that he had raised the issue with Mr. Erdogan during a call last month to congratulate him on his presidential victory. I told him we wanted a deal with Sweden, so let's get that done, Mr. Biden, told reporters at the White House. Some analysts said that Mr. Erdogan held up NATO expansion to show his power on the world stage as a way of appealing to nationalist voters in the run-up to the election. But he has said little about the issue since his victory on May 28. Also attending Wednesday's meeting are Akif Kagate Kilik, an advisor to Mr. Erdogan, Stian Jensen, the private secretary to the NATO Secretary-General, Jan Natsen, the State Secretary of Foreign Affairs of Sweden, and Yuka Salovara, the Permanent State Secretary of Foreign Affairs for Finland. The meeting, in the Turkish capital, Ankara, is the latest of a so-called permanent joint mechanism set up to address Turkey's concerns about Finland and Sweden. The group last met in March at the NATO headquarters in Brussels. The State of the War Ukraine's Counteroffensive After a week of fierce combat with infantry, artillery and tanks, Ukraine claimed small advances in its newly launched campaign in the country's southeast. A message from NATO the largest military air exercises in Europe since the end of the Cold War began as 25 nations took to the air in fighter jets, bombers and cargo planes in a pointed demonstration to Russia. Ukrainian floods In southern Ukraine, a disaster is unfolding in slow motion after an explosion destroyed the dam at the Kakovka Reservoir, emptying its waters and threatening livelihoods in crucial industries. Russia's war comes home. 
Mounting Ukrainian attacks on the Russian side of the border have killed at least a dozen civilians and displaced thousands. But they have not fundamentally changed the calculus for President Vladimir Putin. Lviv, Ukraine, at least five people were killed overnight in Russian aerial attacks across Ukraine, including one far from the front lines in the southern port city of Odessa, Ukrainian officials said on Wednesday. A missile hit a warehouse in Odessa, killing at least three people who worked there, Ukraine's southern military command said Wednesday morning. The Ukrainian Interior Ministry said that Russia fired four-caliber missiles at civilian infrastructure in the Odessa region, hitting the warehouse and damaging a business center, an educational institution, a residential complex, fast food restaurants and shops. Seven people were injured, the ministry said. Photographs posted by the city's emergency response service showed firefighters battling the blaze in the warehouse as they navigated fallen pieces of ceiling and bent steel. The precision cruise missiles were launched from the Black Sea, the Southern Command said in a statement, and two were intercepted. Direct hits by missiles have become rare as Ukraine has gained more experience shooting down Russian volleys. But intercepting aerial weapons carries its own risks, with debris often raining down on civilian areas. Nearer to the front lines in the eastern city of Kramatorsk, missile attacks left two people dead and two others injured early on Wednesday, and in nearby Kostyantinivka, one person was killed and another injured, said Pavlo Kirilenko, the head of the Donetsk Regional Military Administration, in a statement. In a separate episode in the northeastern Sumy region of Ukraine near the border with Russia, six people traveling in a vehicle were shot dead by Russian forces, the Ukrainian prosecutor's office said, in a statement, posted on the Telegram messaging app. The victims included four forestry workers and two civilians, the statement said, adding that the prosecutor's office had opened an investigation. The statement did not elaborate and the report could not be independently verified. Russia's forces have continued to launch aerial attacks on cities away from the front lines, even as they also push back against a nascent Ukrainian counteroffensive. In the central Ukrainian city of Krivy Rih, the death toll from a missile strike on Tuesday rose to 12, Oleksandr Vilkul, the head of the city's military administration, said, on the Telegram messaging app on Wednesday. Hundreds more were most likely displaced by the attack, with nearly 400 apartments damaged, Mr. Vilkul wrote in a post on Telegram. Krivy Rih, President Volodymyr Zelensky's hometown, lies about 100 miles from the eastern front line that has been at the center of recent fighting. Berlin, Germany introduced its first comprehensive national security strategy on Wednesday in an effort to address Germany's priorities and ambitions in a Europe transformed by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The announcement is a key part of the coalition agreement of the government of Chancellor Olaf Scholz, but it also comes as the war in Ukraine has heightened Germany's sense that it has become vulnerable to new military, economic and geopolitical threats, including climate change. China has been such a contentious issue that it will be dealt with in a separate paper scheduled to come out later. In general, the strategy focuses on three pillars of German security. First, an active defense, including a new strategic culture and commitments to high military spending. This includes reaching the goals set by NATO that its members spend 2% of gross domestic product on defense and a focus on deterrence, not disarmament. 
The second pillar is resilience, centering on the ability of Germany and its allies to protect their values, reduce economic dependencies on rivals, deter and defeat cyber attacks and defend the United Nations Charter and the rule of law. The third is sustainability, a pillar that includes issues like climate change and the energy and food crises. Mr. Scholz and top ministers presented the new strategy in a news conference on Wednesday. The plan had been long delayed because of coalition infighting, which led to an agreement to drop the idea of forming a German National Security Council altogether. The annual International Economic Forum opening in the Russian city of St. Petersburg on Wednesday has long been the country's premier event for attracting Western investors and, at first glance, the agenda this year seems to indicate that the Kremlin's invasion of Ukraine changed little. Planned, panel topics include Russia as a global tech hub and the Arctic, territory of investment opportunities and vivid travel, while the word war never appears, even if euphemisms crop up repeatedly, such as the evolving circumstances or the military-political crisis in Europe. The real clue that the war and its accompanying Western economic sanctions have transformed the state-run St. Petersburg International Economic Forum into a shadow of its former self is the scant international presence. Significant trading partners like China and India are dispatching representatives, as are a small number of other Asian, Middle Eastern, African and Latin American friends. Yet the world, for the most part, and the Western world in particular, is staying away. The forum, first held in 1997, was designed to present Russia's modern, technologically advanced face to the West, said Yevgeny Nadershin, the chief economist at PF Capital, a small Moscow consulting firm. The idea behind the forum has significantly deteriorated because most of the potential Western investors who could have come now have no reason to come. Ever since, the West imposed some of the strictest economic sanctions in history on Russia in reaction to its February 2022 invasion of neighboring Ukraine, President Vladimir V. Putin has tried to reassure his country that it can sustain its economy by pivoting to Asia. Long gone are the days when President Emmanuel Macron of France showed up with Mr. Putin, or when Russian oligarch-sponsored parties on the sidelines with free-flowing champagne and leggy models where executives from top Western oil companies hobnobbed with ministers. Some of Russia's die-hard Western friends are expected to appear, like Karen Neissel, a former Austrian foreign minister who danced with Mr. Putin at her wedding, or Matthias Mussdorf, a far-right member of the German parliament. They are scheduled to sit on a panel focused on selling Russia's narrative abroad of a declining Western influence. The United Arab Emirates agreed to serve as this year's honored guest, an annual tradition. A high-level official is expected to appear with Mr. Putin at the main session likely to happen on Friday, although the UAE has yet to confirm who it will be. Those invited to attend will have to be tested for COVID. Dmitry S. Peskov, Mr. Putin's spokesman, suggested Russia was not publicizing the names of all the Westerners attending because they would be eaten alive back home, and Russia had denied credentials to some reporters from what it calls unfriendly countries. Given crumbling ties with the West, holding the forum, albeit mostly with Russians, is considered part of the Kremlin's strategy of keeping the war in the background. The very fact of holding the forum is an attempt to signal to the population that Russia is still conducting business as usual, which is all an illusion, of course, said Cliff Kupchin, chairman of the Eurasia Group, a Washington-based risk analysis firm. 
The agenda includes discussions about certain pet projects of Mr. Putin's, like trying to replace the dollar as the main currency of international trade and the concept of technological sovereignty, meaning doing away with dependence on the West. There are at least hints at Russia's changed circumstances, including a discussion about the fact that the country has been banned from numerous international sports competitions, which the agenda refers to as the reform of the competition calendar. In what seems to be a rare realistic nod to the war, one panel will discuss how Russian soldiers injured in the fighting can be integrated back into regular lives. KYIV, Ukraine, the leader of the United Nations Atomic Watchdog said on Tuesday that he would cross the front line in southern Ukraine to investigate conditions at the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant after the destruction of a dam compromised a key source of water to cool the plant's reactors. After meeting with President Volodymyr Zelensky of Ukraine in Kiev on Tuesday afternoon, Rafael Mariano Grossi, the director general of the watchdog, the International Atomic Energy Agency, said he was setting off for the plant on Tuesday evening, although it appeared on Wednesday that his travels were delayed. The Russian state-run TASS news agency reported that Mr. Grossi's visit to the plant would take place on Thursday, citing an advisor to Russia's nuclear power engineering company. It was not clear what security arrangements had been reached with the warring sides, but Mr. Grossi said he hoped to spend several hours assessing the situation at the plant, where inspectors from the IAEA are already stationed. Mr. Grossi and Ukrainian officials have said that there is no imminent threat of a meltdown, but his trip appeared calculated to call the world's attention, again, to the precarious situation there. An explosion a week ago at the Kakovka hydroelectric dam on the lower Dnipro River unleashed a flood downstream and drained much of the reservoir that had served as the primary source of water for a cooling pond at the plant, which is critical to prevent a nuclear meltdown. Mr. Grossi said that the loss of the water supply in itself is not a cause of immediate danger, but that any problem with the containment system for the pond on site could prove incredibly challenging. The pond provides water to cool the nuclear fuel inside the plant's six reactors as well as spent nuclear fuel. If there was a break in the gates that contained this water or anything like this, you would really lose all your cooling capacity, he said. The pond is currently full and has a surface area of more than three square miles and a depth of more than 50 feet, according to Ukrainian officials. The water level is closely monitored and five of the nuclear plant's six reactors are in cold shutdown mode, which greatly reduces the amount of water they require to ensure safety. A six still produces some steam, which is used for the plant's internal operation, Mr. Grossi said. Mr. Grossi has said in recent days that there is enough water in the pond to last for several months, but on Tuesday he painted a more pessimistic picture, telling journalists that there could be water for a few weeks or maybe a month or two. He said he was going to the plant to make a better assessment. The dam breach is another step into the weakening of the safety net that one has in any nuclear power plant, he said. Mr. Zelensky said in a statement later that he supported an IAEA proposal to send its experts to assess the risk. The nuclear plant, Europe's largest, has faced a series of crises since Russian forces seized it more than a year ago amid a blaze of gunfire. Last summer, it was subject to repeated shelling, and on at least one occasion artillery hit an area where spent nuclear fuel is stored. 
In an unusual, wide-ranging interview with war correspondents and military bloggers, President Vladimir V. Putin on Tuesday portrayed the Russian military as standing firm against the long-anticipated Ukrainian counteroffensive and suggested that the conflict was fulfilling the goals he set initially. The enemy did not succeed in any of the sectors, Mr. Putin said of, the Ukrainian offensive that has been rolling out over recent days, instead suffering huge losses compared with relatively few for Russia. In terms of tanks, for example, he said that Ukraine had lost 160 compared with 54 for Russia, adding that some of the latter could be repaired. His claims could not be independently confirmed. Mr. Putin touched on virtually every aspect of the conflict in recent weeks. He chose a format he has rarely used, allowing 18 reporters to inquire about the war for more than two hours in a style reminiscent of his annual direct line performance, when he answers questions for hours from all over the country. Russia did not need to draft more new soldiers because it had attracted about 156,000 contractors or other volunteers since January, he said, on top of the 300,000 drafted last year. Trying to make the best of the fact that Russia had suffered repeated setbacks with both men and weaponry, he suggested that the country had learned valuable lessons on how to better organize its armed forces. He admitted that the cross-border attacks from Ukraine by Russian partisans had been damaging, suggesting with some bravado that Russia might have to carve out an exclusion zone on the Ukrainian side of the border to prevent its artillery from reaching into Russia. At one point he also suggested that the Russian army might have to again march on Kiev, the Ukrainian capital. Russian forces were driven out of Kiev after failing to take it as promised in just a few days after the full-scale invasion in February 2022 and lost a wide stretch of the area around the eastern city of Kharkiv to a Ukrainian offensive last fall. To Nikolai Petrov, a seasoned political analyst, the entire effort sounded as though Mr. Putin was trying to demonstrate that he was a commander-in-chief fully in control of the facts on the ground. More important, Mr. Petrov speculated that the remarks could be a prelude to seeking negotiations by implying that the Ukrainian counteroffensive was doomed. Given that the general public trusts the correspondents and bloggers far more than the Ministry of Defense, his choice of interlocutors, along with throwing out details like the number of Russian tanks destroyed, was designed to build a semblance of even-handed analysis, Mr. Petrov said. There is no reason for him to be so public and to give such detailed explanations unless he was trying to address a Western or Ukrainian audience, he said. The very idea is to demonstrate that he is the commander-in-chief who knows everything about everything. Mr. Putin claimed that Russia was doing a great job of demilitarizing Ukraine despite its Western backers. He admitted to various bits of information that had been an open secret before, like the pardons he was issuing for convicts who had fought for the Wagner mercenary group. Much of what he said was not new, such as threatening to pull out of a deal that has allowed Ukraine to export millions of tons of grain from its Black Sea ports, despite Russia's control of the waterways, saying that he was only doing it because so much of the world needed the grain. He noted that military production had increased 2.7 times, and in some cases was 10 times greater, he said, using a somewhat odd anecdote to illustrate their quality. A T-90 Russian tank that hit a landmine had emerged unscathed, even though the person inside took such a hard hit that he died, Mr. Putin said. 
In latest chapter of the feud between Sergei K. Shoigu, the Minister of Defense, and Yevgeny V. Prigazin, the pugnacious founder of the Wagner Private Military Force, Mr. Prigazin rejected a call by the Defense Ministry for all such organizations to sign contracts by July 1. The move was considered an effort by the ministry to extend some control over such forces, which are technically illegal in Russia, while also granting them full military benefits. Mr. Putin said he backed the call for paramilitary organizations to sign such contracts. Mr. Petrov, the analyst, suggested that the president was using Mr. Prigazin as a foil, making the president seem the more temperate figure as the mercenary commander repeatedly calls for escalating attacks against Ukraine and putting the economy on a war footing. It is his style before any negotiation to let his guy say something horrible in order to look better, Mr. Petrov said. Ukraine's Western allies announced two new military assistance packages on Tuesday, offering armored fighting vehicles and air defense abilities to the country as it forges ahead with its counteroffensive against Russia. Altogether, the new aid provides $441 million to Ukraine in security aid. The Joint Expeditionary Force, an alliance of European countries, said it would send an additional $116 million of military aid to Ukraine in the coming months, including radar systems, guns and ammunition, to help Ukraine secure critical infrastructure, the civilian population and military staff. The British Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, said in a statement that we are providing a package of air defence to help Ukraine protect their critical national infrastructure and defend against indiscriminate Russian airstrikes. Led by Britain, the Joint Expeditionary Force includes Denmark, Estonia, Finland, Iceland, Latvia, Lithuania, the Netherlands, Norway and Sweden. At the same time, the Biden administration announced a new tranche of $325 million in military hardware for Ukraine. The package includes anti-aircraft and anti-armor systems, Bradley and Stryker armored fighting vehicles, and additional ammunition. The American Secretary of State, Antony J. Blinken, said in a statement that the latest package, the 40th one Washington has provided, included artillery rounds, long-range rockets for HIMARS launchers and anti-tank weapons. The package also includes 25 armored vehicles, which are critical to Ukraine's push to recapture land, the Defense Department said. The United States will send an additional 15 Bradley infantry fighting vehicles and six striker personnel carriers. Washington is also sending more than 22 million rifle rounds and grenades, which will be critical during the counteroffensive. The United States is the most significant contributor to the Ukrainian war effort, having given nearly $40 billion in aid so far. Mr. Blinken said in a statement that, until Russia withdraws, the United States and our allies and partners will stand united with Ukraine for as long as it takes. The Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, thanked President Biden and allies for the military support on Twitter, saying that the new aid was exactly what Ukrainian defense forces need today.